Servanthood in Action, we've entitled the, same, the message this morning. John, the writer of this gospel account, has been presenting to us, and has presented to us seven signs in his gospel account that have shown us, according to his purpose in John chapter 20, which you've heard, you'll continue to hear to finish the book. The purpose of those signs have been so that people would realize that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the one sent of God, the Son of God. And that by believing, we would have life through his name. That is the reason that John has presented basically the first 12 chapters of this account to us. And yet, as we have recently seen, most of the people have rejected Jesus Christ as Messiah. If you just look at chapter 12, verse 37 quickly, it says, but though he had performed so many signs, even beyond what John has presented before them, yet they were not believing in him. With all the evidence presented, they still didn't want to believe as a majority. And yet some, including, as we have seen recently, even leaders have come to believe by the grace of God. Because if you look at verse 42, nevertheless, many, even the rulers of the rulers, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees and so forth. So most had not believed, but some had come to believe. Jesus Christ had been on the earth to this stage for about 32 to 33 years, to put that in perspective for us. He had taken on flesh and had been walking the earth. During those 32 to 33 years so far, he has been revealing, manifesting, showing who the Father is, who God is, what God is like. And he's been spending his time displaying that since he's been a boy. And he also has been giving spiritual instruction to those that he came in contact with. He's been performing miracles to verify, to validate, to authenticate, to demonstrate, to show that he is the true Messiah. He's been showing God's grace and compassion in many a situation, with healing, with crying, with weeping, with just the touch of a hand. He's been used of God in a tremendous way. And yet he's been basically rejected as a whole by the nation of Israel. He wept over the city, as we've seen recently, and most people, as I just referred. And now, with the 33 years in, in this past, if you will, here on earth, he has now come to his hour. Chapter 12, verse 23, if you just scan there. He knew that his hour had come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And in chapter 13, verse 1, we open up with that. It says that his hour had come, that he, sh- that he would depart out of this world to the Father. So his hour has now come. Now put that in perspective for yourself. His life on earth is basically completed. He's only hours away from facing crucifixion. He's hours away from his death. He is leaving this earth, and from now, from our perspective today, this has been over 2,000 years that he's been departed from the earth as far as his physically being here on earth. And I want you to notice immediately what he does not do, the exact opposite of what I think I would do or we would do. He does not get involved in self-pity. 
He doesn't go off in a corner and start crying because his life is coming to an end. He doesn't go off and start to contemplate in a panic mode. What am I going to do? Now you say that's because he's Jesus Christ. It's also an example. But even in his last hours, even in knowing that hours from now he is going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane with such pressure on him that he's going to sweat as if it was blood. And we'll get there. He knows that that's only hours away. And what does he do? He continues to minister. He uses this last time to minister specifically to his disciples. Those who are going to continue to carry on his ministry. His disciples at this stage, this is just to set the tone for chapter 13. His disciples at this stage are somewhat confused by all that has happened. In fact, as we compare the narratives with the other gospel accounts, they are dealing with their own pride. Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest in the kingdom? And so forth as you begin to compare. Who's the best? What's going on? He's been telling them he's going to die, and they're actually denying it. They have little comprehension for what is about to transpire before them in the next day. And what happens is we come to the next unit of John's account. Chapters 13 through 17. Now, I read the beginning of chapter 13. And in this next unit, just to put it in perspective where he had all these years, and now he's only hours away, he has a private session with his disciples, and this will all take place, chapters 13 through 17, in one day. Everything else has been 33 years. One day. And if he's going to spend one day in chapters 13 to 17, I think there's something significant there that he wants them to learn and he wants you and I to learn. He will be instructing them that I'm going away. But don't worry, because I'm going away to prepare a place for you. We'll see that. He's going to tell them, I'm going away, but don't worry, because you're going to be better off. I've only been with you basically 32 to 33 years. I am going to send another comforter, just like me, who will be with you forever. By the way, tremendously encouraging to us because we have that benefit now. The Holy Spirit with believers forever. And he's going to instruct them on that terrific and tremendous theological area. Then we're going to see this unbelievable prayer. If you want to talk about the Lord's Prayer, I understand what we mean when we talk about the Lord's Prayer and, and, and that text that always gets quoted, but the Lord's Prayer is really found in John chapter 17 when he is going to pray not only for his disciples and not only for the glorification that the Father is to receive, He's going to pray for you and me. He's going to pray for you and me in his last moments on the earth. But even before he gets to any of that, he's going to start us off in chapter 13 and will show them an example of what it means to be a servant, of what 
you and I should be doing in these first 17 verses. And I'll be honest with you, and I know you're not going to, you don't have to worry, it's not going to happen. But I wish I had about two hours right now for this text that's in front of me. My studying this week and the time I've spent, I tell you, the impact on this passage, I would encourage you right now, if you fall asleep in 10 seconds, you take this passage and read it and reread it and read it and reread it every day this week. The setting is found in verses 1 to 3. With that background, we come into the passage. It says, before the Passover, now before the Passover. The Passover was at hand. I'll, I'll give a comment on those verse, that expression in just a second. But what is obvious, because we've been seeing it already in John, because the people had gathered, if you remember, and it was six days, according to chapter 12, before the Passover back then. The Passover was at hand. Let me put that in perspective. The Passover was to commemorate for the, the Israelites, what? Their deliverance from slavery, their deliverance from Egypt. We know that. And it was also to be a reminder to them of what? The redemption that was found. Now listen, it's important. The redemption for them that happened that was found by a sacrificial lamb. It was to remind them that they were passed over because a lamb shed his blood. And by the lamb shedding the blood in what was considered a sacrificial, substitutionary sacrifice, God passed over them. And they had redemption. They had deliverance. And we have seen in John's account so far, and they have had presented to them, and now we're coming to the Passover and the reminder of the Passover. What's the significance? Isaiah chapter 53, I won't go there, but in verse 7 basically spoke about the Lamb of God. It spoke about the Lord Jesus Christ. It spoke about the Messiah that would come as a lamb to the slaughter, who would bear the sins of many. And it spoke about that in Isaiah, and they didn't see it. And yet, what's astounding, go back with me to this for a second, because I'll just, it's just in John. Go back to John chapter 1 for just a second here. John chapter 1. John the Baptist, who also came along, remember this in verse 29? In verse 29, he said this. When he saw Jesus coming to him, he said, Behold what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Look at verse 36. And he looked at Jesus as he walked and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. They're getting ready to celebrate the Passover. It was to be a reminder of their redemption, a picture of what was to come with the Messiah. And now in their midst is the one that's been prophesied for so long, the very Lamb of God who according, by the way, to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Jesus Christ, listen, it's important, is our Passover. He is the substitutionary sacrifice so that our sins can be forgiven and our redemption is made possible. That's who's in their midst, and that's just about to take place. And in the context we read, and before the feast. Now, comparing the synoptics, I'm going to give you this brief. I could spend theologically, just so you know it, 
on that very expression the next half hour. I won't. But I will tell you this. When you compare with the rest of the synoptics, this is what's known as the Last Supper that's coming up. And it was at the Passover. However, this incident says that it was before the feast, and it's complicated. And if you look at chapter 13, just verse 29 for a second, to get a little ahead of yourself, look at verse 29. I want you to see what, why this word before is important. It says in verse 29, For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, Buy the things we need for the feast. So it hadn't happened yet. That is further complicated by chapter 18. Would you go with me there? Chapter 18, verse 28. Because after you get through 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, you come in chapter 18 to verse 28, and it says this. Then they led Jesus from uh, Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early, and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium. Why? So that they would not defy, be defiled, but might eat the Passover. And this is even later. And I won't turn to it, but you'd find in chapter 19, you run into the same difficulty. So this before is really somewhat significant. I will give it to you very simply, though, in a nutshell. There are two things that happened because in Israel, the, those Israelites in the north who were from the area of Galilee judged Passover from sunrise to sunrise. Those who were in Jerusalem judged Passover from sunset to sunset. That doesn't mean a lot to us, but it's very significant. Because Jesus and his disciples would have observed it from sunrise to sunrise. They would have eaten on a Thursday night later on. The people during his crucifixion, when he was the actual sacrificial lamb, would have done it on Friday. And it reconciles a lot. That's it in a nutshell. But I think also in verse 1 is the very simple thing for the context. And that is... He's showing you what happened before they even got to the meal. And I think it's that simple. But I want you to catch this. It says there that before the feast, so before they're really eating the meal, Jesus with knowledge, and by the way, he had knowledge of the Passover as well. There's a tie-in there. That his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world. That's what his hour is. The cross, departing out of this world. Watch this. To the Father. That's where he's going. Now watch this. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now that's not too significant when we first look at it, but I'm going to tell you something that you should have noticed already in our study. To this point in John, we've been seeing two other L words. We've been seeing light, light of the world, light, light of life, and so forth, and that's the other one. The other word is life. Life, light, life, light found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And from chapter 13, 1 through chapter 15, 30 times now you will see the word love. It's a complete change. The Lord is now going to demonstrate his love. He's going to show it by dying on the cross, but he's also going to show you what love is really all about. Everybody in this world is talking about love today. This is going to demonstrate what love is. Over 30 times in the next three chapters, we're going to see that term. He loved them to the end. What is that? Well, there's two possibilities. One would be that because of the word meaning, it could be he loved them to perfection. I think that's true. But I think it's very simple in the context, and I would take the easier of the two. And that is he loved them right up to the end of his ministry. 
He didn't even concentrate on his own death that was coming. But he continued to minister. Both are true in the context, but I think it fits best because he's going, even what he says, he was here, he knows he's going back to the Father, he loved them, and he's going to love them right unto the end. How do you measure that love? I don't think we can. And then we get into this. And I really want to get to the servant part of it, but I want to go right through. You see that what happened is during supper, the devil having already, and I'm going to expand on this because we're going to come to when Satan actually comes into and possesses um, Judas Iscariot. It's in this text in chapter 13. So I'm going to amplify this more there. But let me say this for today. You'll notice that the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot the son of Simon to betray him. What happened here? First of all, Judas was never committed to the Lord. He walked with the Lord. He was never committed to the things of God. We know already in our study of John that basically he held the bag. He was a thief. He wasn't interested in the Lord. We also know that he had already, what? Made the arrangements with the high priest that he would be the one to betray him. Now, how does that all work together? I would give you as a reference James chapter 1, verses 14 to 16, and for time I'm not going to turn there. In that passage it says this, that sin basically starts within our own lusts. Then it is enticed by Satan, basically, and then it conceives sin. And I think the picture that you'll see by the time we get to the end of the chapter when it comes to, to uh, Judas Iscariot is that he had conceived in his heart Obviously, the devil had then enticed that, and that's what it's dealing with here, with the idea of putting it in his heart, and then he follows through on his actions, and sin is conceived. But we'll deal more with that later. So Jesus knows what's going on, according to verse 3. Knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth, watch this, from God. Who is Jesus Christ? He's God. He came forth from him. That was God's only Son. Just the Son of God? What does that mean? We've already seen that in John. That it means that He is God. God in the flesh. And that He was, what? Going back to God. He came from Him and He was going back to Him. Why? God sent Him for this very purpose. This hour that was coming. And what does He do? His actions are absolutely astounding. And this is where I want to concentrate this morning. In verses 4 to 11. He gets up from supper lays aside his garments, takes a towel, girded himself, and then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Let's stop there. I want you to remember who this is. This is the Son of God, folks. This is the King of Kings. This is the Lord of of lords let me stop right here with an application how many of you or me would do this this is the king of kings this is the creator of the universe that's doing this this is the one would you turn with me to psalm 113 please i want you to see this who is this that's doing this well it's jesus christ and he bounces right off our tongue and it's like, oh yeah, he washed the disciples' feet. Who is this that's doing this? Psalm 113, verses 5 and 6. Might those of us who know the Lord 
be put to shame if we're not humbled by what we read. Psalm 113, verses 5 and 6. Who is like the Lord our God? Who is enthroned on high? Now watch verse 6. Who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth. Our God has to humble himself to look at that which he has created. That's how great he is. And we come to a text like this and he's washing the disciples' feet. He begins washing the disciples' feet, he, t he tells us. To help us to comprehend that, and I know some of you, maybe many of you are familiar with it, it first of all actually goes back to the Orient and that's going to help us with the bathing process because they would bathe before they visited a house and then as they walked to a house, even in the Orient, they would have to clean, have their feet clean. Also, we have the conditions in the Middle East. The roads were not like our paved roads. They were dirt roads. I know you're familiar with that. They wore sandals. They didn't have socks. By the way, I'm French when I say the next thing. I always laugh when I see a Frenchman come down from Canada with sandals and white socks. Makes me laugh. I don't know. Doesn't seem to mix. But anyway, side issue. They didn't have socks. They had sandals. Their feet got dirty. And normally they were washed at the entrance of a home. Now, let me put it in perspective for you so you understand in the studying that I've done on this. Sometimes, and some of this may be new to you, I don't think most of it will be, but they would, because of the dirt roads and so forth, have to have their feet washed before they would enter into a home. Now, sometimes the wives would wash the feet of the husbands. <clears throat> sometimes, on some occasions, children would wash the feet of the parents. Sometimes, when you go and look at the history and you follow it through, sometimes people would wash their own feet. They would come to the door, not the same thing, but it would almost be like people have swimming pools and then sometimes before you go in the swimming pool, or you go in, before you go in a house, there's a little bucket there and you wash your feet off. Some would wash their own feet. That was what would happen. Most of the time, however, it was done by a servant for those who had the servant. And it was done by the lowest servants. Rarely, listen to this, rarely do you find, according to the reading that I did, rarely would you find even, listen, a Jew washing the feet of another Jew. Rarely. It happened occasionally, but it was rare. They would want servants who were not Jews doing that. My friend, never was it heard of that a king or a ruler, <clears throat> or anyone that was a master or a rabbi would wash anybody's feet. This is the king of kings. This is outrageous. Outrageous to see something like this happen. That the king of kings, their teacher, their master, would come and wash the feet. No wonder to understand no wonder you've got this reaction in verse 6 where Peter says to the Lord Jesus Christ when he came to him, Lord, you do wash my feet. Literally, you, me. That's what it means. You doing it to me. He caught it. At least give him this much credit. He, above the others, recognized that you're the master. 
You're the teacher. How can you be doing this to me? And he goes on in verses 7 and 8. I read them so you can look at them quickly. He goes on in verses 7 and 8 and basically says in the most powerful way, I believe that it could be represented there in verse 8, never, no, never are you going to be able to do this to me. I won't allow it. The Lord teaches in a humble fashion. And his teaching is this. He goes on with the practical. And he says, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Now let me spend a second on that word part for a second here with you. Because it's important to understand the context. If you're reading from the authorized version, for example, it does not make the distinguishment between the word bath and the word wash. It uses wash, 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 wash. But there's some significant things here for you to grasp. That word pot is an interesting word that caught my eye because I believe it's dealing with fellowship. Now, why would I say that? For a number of reasons. It's usage. Many of you are familiar with, in Luke chapter 10, Mary. Mary sat down, and rather than being busy with all the work, she had her pot with Jesus. She fellowshiped with him. Further, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, which I think is the clearest one, many of you are familiar with that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, it deals with the fact that we are not to be joined, and by the way, how this message, I didn't plan on saying this, it just came into my mind, dangerous, I know. But how I wish Christians would get this message at this time of year called Halloween. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, it says, what business has the things of God with the things that belong to Satan? What business and so forth and what fellowship and what communion it goes on and then it uses the same word and it says, what part had the things of God with the things of Belial? In all of that context, it means fellowship. And so what he's saying with him is if I don't wash your feet, basically, Peter, your fellowship's not going to be right with me. Now, that's going to be important in a second. Because he also says, Peter says, wash my not just my feet then, but my hands and my head. And when he uses the illustration and says, look, if you've had a bath, you're completely clean except for your feet. Because when you walk, only your feet need it. You don't have to have your whole bath. What is that dealing with? Long and short of it to give it to you so I get to the actual example here in the, in the text. What he's saying is, you've already got the relationship with me. I'll give you the application. When you've been bathed, when you've come to trust in Christ for salvation, when you belong to him, you already have all that you need. And the cleaning up, if you will, by application, is just a regular thing with the sin that's going on. It's got nothing to do with losing salvation. In fact, it shows you you can't. And the reason I take it into the realm of salvation is because he uses Judas Iscariot. He says, he who is bathed needs only to have his feet washed, but is completely clean. You are clean. You already have a relationship with me, Peter. But not all of you. And he talks about the fact he knew the one that was betraying him. Who was the one that did not have the relationship? It was Judas Iscariot, the one that's going to betray him. No relationship with God. And I just want to give you that important application. When you come to Christ, you have a relationship with him. And you don't have to go walking the aisle time after time or trying to get saved or resaved or saved again. Once you're saved, you're saved completely. 
And when it comes to your sins daily, all you need to do is that's like the feet washing. And that's what it has to do to restore the fellowship. And that's what he's saying. You'll have no fellowship with me. That's why I emphasize that word. If I don't also wash your feet, Peter. That's an important aspect. So there's a practical aspect to it with bathing, but also a spiritual lesson that's being taught. And we have to get to the portion of verses 12 through 17. So after you'd washed their feet, he said, do you know what I've done? You call me teacher and Lord. Notice this. You're right. They were right. He was teacher. He was Lord. He says, so I am. But if I wash your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I do. First of all, let me make you aware of the fact, you're probably aware of it, that some denominations believe that this is an ordinance for the church. Some very good men take that position. I disagree, and I don't think it, when you look at the whole context, and, and you look at the fact where he says, I give you an example to do, and then he says, if I'm greater, and he explains it in verse 16, as a master, and uh, you're not greater than that, you're good if you know these things and you do them. What is he giving an example of? Servanthood. How do we know that? Well, let me first of all have you look at a text that we didn't look at this morning. Go with me to Matthew chapter 20 for a second. I'll come right back to this text. He's given them an example not to just necessarily wash their feet. It's serving them. The servant was the only one that did this. And he was the master and he was doing it. Matthew 20 verses 25 to 28. Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus Christ came to be a servant. And he's saying, yes, you're right, back in John chapter 13. I am teacher. I am Lord. And yet I did what only a servant does. I washed your feet. I washed your feet. He says, I've given you an example that you should do this. Well, how do we do this? The Lord Jesus Christ, also in Philippians chapter 2, it told us this morning, being in the form of God, thought it not equal to be, thought not Robert to be equal with God, but made himself in the form of a servant, even going to the cross of Calvary. And in this text, even to the serving of his disciples, when they're arguing about who's the greatest, when they want to know who's the best, when they're thinking only of themselves, he strips himself of everything and even his garments and begins to get down to the feet and they should have been adoring him and worshiping him and he washes their feet even in Philippians chapter 2 we are told that we should do we are called to Jesus Christ we are saved by the grace of God 
to serve our Savior and one another. Not our own interests. How many Sunday after Sundays do you come in here and not notice those verses? I wonder if you didn't look on the side, if I could ask you to quote them, whether you could quote them or not. You should have them memorized. We need to be serving one another. How many of us are putting the brethren first? How many are doing nothing through selfish ambition and conceit? How many of us are esteeming others better than ourselves? How many of us are looking not out for our own personal interests, but for the personal interests of others? As I look out on Christianity and I look out on the failures of my own life, most of the time our ministry is all about us. It's about my needs, my pleasures, my satisfaction, what's making me comfortable, what I want to do in life, my job, my house, my retirement, my this, my that. Christians, Jesus Christ came into this world just the opposite. And if he hadn't laid down his life for us, there would be no salvation. And he would go to the measures of stooping down and washing filthy, dirty feet. I wonder, never mind, I wonder even practically how many of you would turn around and even wash someone else's dirty feet after they came out of the mud pile. You'd probably tell them to go wash first, then I'll wash your feet. Put himself down at that level. And we have the trouble of serving one another. Do you know in this audience, right in this room, many are here that are hurting, that have, some are out of jobs, some have physical needs, some have this, and there are many in this room who go out of here and say, I'll pray for you, and they don't even think in the seven days of the week more than five minutes about that individual, let alone how they can help them or put their interests first. Am I trying to browbeat you? No. We're called to serve. We're called to put others first. That starts with me. I'm called to put your time, you first, in front of myself. And so are you called to do the same thing. He's given the example to the disciples and they didn't see it. When is the last time that we gave up some time to even assist somebody? That we went out of our way to purposely find out who is it that might be in the hospital and we went to visit them. That we went out of our way to, to help a family that needs a meal rather than say, I haven't got time for that. They don't really need that. Those are the simple things. Simple. We, willing, we need to be willing. He said we're happy if we not know these things. I'd be willing to guess that anyone in this assembly, anyone in this audience today that's a Christian, knows these things. And would be able to tell me, I know, Pastor Dan, I'm called to be a servant. Are you doing it? Am I doing it? Are we serving our Savior in that way? Who gets the glory? The Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. We need to get down into the muck and the mire 
and the mud in our Christian lives. There is nothing wrong, so I'm not misunderstood, with God blessing your life and to have an abundance, whether it be health, whether it be family, whether it be a home, whether it be multi-homes, whether it be cars, whatever. I'm not talking about that. If that's all you see, you've missed it all. But how many of us are sacrificing? I'll tell you something. And I can say this because I don't know anything about the giving here. But I'll tell you something. Even we just had the offering and so forth. You know, most of the time, the people that are giving the most are the people that don't have it. And the people that have all the luxuries don't even consider even giving to the work of the Lord. I don't know that for a fact as far as this assembly, but I know it statistically because I read. The ones that have the luxuries very rarely reach out to the ones who don't have them. And I'm talking about with even a meal, with even a hospital visit. That's not serving one another. That's not putting others' interests in front of mine. Am I out of the text right now? Yes, by application. That's not walking in lowliness of others. Ask yourself this. Just this past week, how much time did you spend esteeming others in this local assembly better than yourself at all? Or how much time did you spend pushing your own goals, pushing your own thinking, pushing your own achievements, thinking upon how you can advance your own situation. I don't think that's why Christ came. He spent the last hours of his life knowing that he was going to have to bear the penalty and price of your sin, knowing that he was going to have that agony in the garden, knowing the physical stuff that he was going to face, and he spent his last hours ministering to those who would carry on the work and exemplifying to them that I'm here to serve you. And you better go out and do the same. You better go out and do the same. There is so much depth here. King of kings, Lord of lords, washing the disciples' feet. Oh, we can all intellectually see it. But can we do it? And I don't mean to have a party this afternoon where everybody gets out the hose and starts washing. But my God challenge our hearts, those of us that are professing believers, to even begin to ask ourselves, how much time do I spend praying for others, thinking about others, taking action toward others, spending time with others, or how much time? And I know the busy world we're wrapped up in. And I think I can say this with pretty good confidence. I'm probably as busy as anybody else that's here and have as many responsibilities. But if I can't put others first, then I'm not doing what I should be doing. And if you can't do that as a Christian, you're not doing what you should be doing. I don't care who you are. Don't miss the first point because I have no doubt there's people here that still haven't come to Christ. All these signs, all of this work. Judas Iscariot is going to have his feet washed. He's going to see 
all the miracles and is not going to come to Christ. How many of you have had all the evidence in the world? You've come to church week after week and you still haven't come to see how the king of kings laid down his life and you're trusting in yourself or religion or something else. Come to Christ today. That's the bath. That's the first place where you come and have your sins cleansed. Ephesians talks about that. It says that we are washed by the blood of Christ. By his blood, I'm cleansed and made clean. Come to Jesus Christ today. And fellow believer, my God challenged right in the pulpit first. And I know it'd be easy for you to sit there and look at me and say, and I, I, I suppose it's true, there's, there's an advantage to you of my being here over 30 years. And it's, there's nothing to hide. I laugh when people say that I hide stuff. You know more about my family and you know more about the things that have gone on and so forth than most people know about you. There's nothing to hide. I'm in a fishbowl. And so the reality is we know that we need to be serving Christ. And the reality is that we should, as believers, fellow believers, be willing to spend our time. So it's easy to look at me and say, yeah, you need to be serving others, but so do you, as I look out in this audience, in a way that brings glory to God, in a way that puts others first. I tell you, we sing there's a joy in serving Jesus, but when we truly serve him the way we should, there's glory to God and joy to the believer beyond all comparison. My God help us to be examples like Jesus Christ was an example and to begin serving one another today. Let's pray. Our Father in God, I know I didn't do justice even to the passage with the, the depth that's here. But Father, I just stand in awe that the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, God of the universe, thought it not robbery to be equal with you, but yet took on the form of a servant, according to Philippians, even to the death on the cross, that he would wipe the disciples' feet. I thank you, Father, that Peter got a glimpse of it and he understood when he said, no, not my feet. He understood who it was that was doing it. But I also thank you for his heart that once he understood that he was willing, he submitted. And I thank you, Father, as we look at the life of Peter, he also went out and served, gave his life. Father, help us to give our life for one another. Help us to put the interests of others in front of ours, to esteem others more highly than we esteem ourselves. And I pray that there'd be such a sweet fellowship here, right at Fellowship Bible Church, that will filter into the community as we care for one another, as we love one another, right to the end. We thank you that Christ loved his disciples and loves us that way, right to the end. And help us with every breath that we've got to not just say we love you, but to demonstrate it by our service. And if there be any in this room who have not yet come to Christ, oh, Father, open up their heart. It's our desire that they would trust in Christ, that they would have their sins forgiven. And I pray that that would happen today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.